everyone. I am Reverend Sandy. And I am Reverend Jim. Welcome to Angel Talk Radio Live. Our show is sponsored by the Living Light Center at Church of Faith and Healing. For anyone interested, Jim and I do personal readings. And if you'd like to have a personal reading, you can call 304-567-3354 or email sandysangeltalk at aol.com. That's S-A-N-D-Y-S. A-N-G-E-L-T-A-L-K at AOL.com. Welcome, everyone. We have an exciting show here today, and our topic is going to be Long Ago They Stole Christmas From Us. Um, One thing we want to remind people to today is that this is um, um, Angel Talk is, is sponsored by the Living Light Center, a church of faith and healing. Um, and I want to put a waiver or or notice in front of this specific radio program today um, that if you have younger children that might be able to hear this this show or listen to it or, or whatever it may be, um, you may not want to keep them in the room with you or put on a set of headphones because, you know, some of the things we are going to talk about are going to give you a little history of, you know, where that fat guy in a red suit came from, and why. Okay. So, as you know, in order for businesses to be successful, they had to create ways to capture the interest of people, to create images that would excite your interest and inspire you to buy more of their products and to recognize their business or their department store. So... Masterful minds came up with some approaches that turned into a gold mine for them. Little did they realize many years later how they would affect the minds of people, particularly children, and influence a belief in people that Christmas is all about the material things, about buying more and more presents for people. The real meaning of Christmas was changed from the birth of Jesus to Santa Claus delivering presents to your house in a red suit with a sleigh and with nine reindeer pulling the sleigh through the sky on Christmas Eve. One of the most influential marketers was Coca-Cola. It wasn't just about Santa enjoying a Coca-Cola. It was about everyone, the elves, the reindeer, the snowmen, sharing in the festivities. It was a vision of the holiday season that was inclusive, communal, and utterly enchanting. And this approach had another significant effect. It further solidified Coca-Cola's place in the Christmas experience. The company's portrayal of a jolly old man had become a symbol of the holiday season. You you mean like with them having a red can or a red bottle? Absolutely, yep. (laughs) So the world of Coca-Cola's Santa was always filled with more than just the man in the red suit. They had a festive family. They had elves. Those tireless helpers of Santa were frequent present in Coca-Cola's advertisements. And with with their pointy hats and smiles, they added a sense of merriment and industrialness spirit to the scene. Then there was the reindeer, Santa's trusty steeds, who led and in the air the majestic of their adventure. And let's not forget the occasional snowman. 
a figure that embodies the playful side of the winter season. While each character played a role, each one contributed to the sense of joy and wonder. That is so integral to the holiday season. And they were more than just background figures. They were part of the story, part of the magic. By surrounding Santa with his festive, you know, uh, you know, abilities that were there, Coca-Cola was doing more than just painting a vivid picture of the North Pole. They were creating a sense of community, a sense of shared joy that is at the heart of the holiday season. And this playful narrative has another important effect. It enhances the mystique of Coca-Cola's brand by suggesting that their secret formula is known to a figure as magical and mysterious as Santa Claus, while Coca-Cola adds an extra layer of intrigue to their brand story. It's a masterful stroke of storytelling, one that blends reality and fantasy in a way that captivates the imagination. Then a powerful slogan can capture the essence of a brand, resonates with the consumers, stands the test of time. Coca-Cola understood this, and in the 1940s they crafted a slogan that will become a cornerstone of their brand, the pause that refreshes. Well, by associating their slogan with Santa Claus in their advertisement, Coca-Cola effectively linked their brand to the holiday season. And according to Coca-Cola, Santa Claus is one of the few who knows the secret formula. By aligning their brand with Santa in this way, Coca-Cola is doing more than just adding a touch of whimsy to their story. They're tapping into the deep reservoir of trust and affection that people have for Santa Claus. They're suggesting that if Santa, a figure of unimpeachable integrity, is in on the secret that it must indeed be something special. Well, the essence of Santa Claus, a figure steeped in centuries of folklore and tradition, is a testament to enduring values. Yet, even legends must evolve to remain relevant. This was a reality that Coca-Cola understood well. So as the world changed around them, they recognized the need for their version of Santa Claus to change with it. And over time, the Santa and Coca-Cola's advertisements shifted. The jolly, ruddy-faced figure, while retaining his red suit, began to take on a more grandfatherly personal. You know, he looked, he looked like the perfect little grandfather. The changes were subtle but significant. His features softened, his expressions became more tender, and his posture more relaxed. Now, he was an approachable figure, inviting viewers to share in his enjoyment of the season. Then in 1951, Coca-Cola embarked on a marketing campaign that was as daring as it was unique. The plan was unique, yet audacious. They would take to the skies and drop 50,000 bottles of Coca-Cola along with accompanying advertisements to isolated military outposts and remote research nations and stations at the North Pole. The operation was a resounding success. As the bottles descended from the sky, they painted a picture of generosity and good cheer that was hard to resist. Well, in 1931, 
Sundbaum was commissioned by Coca-Cola to create a series of Christmas advertisements. He dressed Santa in a bright red suit. The red suit was not just a fashion statement, but a strategic decision. Red was a color that stood out, especially against the stark white snow that often served as the backdrop for Santa. Red also denotes a lot of other things, too, though. Oh, yeah, (laughs) right. And it was also the color of Coca-Cola's logo, creating a subtle association between the brand and the beloved holiday figure. So even as other elements of holiday seasons evolved, the image of Santa in his red suit remained a constant, a beacon of tradition amidst the sea of change. As the 1950s drawled, Coca-Cola found itself at a crossroad. The brand had successfully reinvented Santa Claus for a new age, but the question remained, what next? How could they further entrench themselves in the hearts and minds of consumers around the world, and especially during the most magical time of the year? By intriguing Santa Claus into their advertisements, Coca-Cola managed to infuse their brand with the magic of the holiday season, each ad with its jolly, rosy-cheeked Santa enjoying a Coke, creating a lasting, heartwarming association between the joy of Christmas and the refreshing taste of Coca-Cola. It was a brilliant marketing move that transformed Coca-Cola from a mere beverage into a symbol of cheer, unity, and goodwill, a tradition as eagerly anticipated as Christmas itself. You know, perhaps the most iconic department store, Macy's, was the Santa. Is Kris Kringle in the 1947 classic Santa Claus movie, Miracle on 34th Street, where a young Natalie Wood played a little girl who believes Kris Kringle when he says he is the real Santa. Then Robert L. May, a copywriter of the Montgomery Ward's department store, in 1939, wrote a Christmas-themed story poem to help bring holiday traffic into his store using a similar rhyme pattern to Moore's, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." May told the story of Rudolph, a young reindeer who was teased by the other deer because of his large, glowing red nose. But when Christmas Eve turned foggy and Santa worried that he wouldn't be able to deliver his gifts that night, the former outcast saved Christmas by leading the sleigh by the light of his nose, his bright red nose. Rudolph's message that given the opportunity, a liability can be turned into an asset proved popular. Montgomery Wards sold almost two and a half million copies of the story in 1939. When it was reissued in 1946, the book sold over Three and a half million copies. And, you know, one of the reasons, Sandy, too, here, if you look at it, because there were, there were some holes in what had been, you know, designed by the commercialization, and kids were starting to ask questions. Well, what about this? What about that? And so they had to come up with, with an answer, and those are the answers they came up with you know, to explain um, the chimney, how to come down the chimney. And, you know, but then came the, the question of, you know, well, what if the chimney's, you know, if a fire's burning? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know. Kids got smarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And how did, how did all these reindeers fit on the roof? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And they were all reindeers lie. You know, there was, there was, I mean, having kids, you know, you know those questions come along. And you better be prepared for them, but usually you're not. You know, you don't think about them. But in reality, there were still a lot of holes that needed to be plugged, but they pushed what they had so hard that nobody really wanted to mess with it. So they left it alone. And how many generations? I mean, if you're talking back in the, what, 1920s, 30s, Mm -hmm. I mean, and up to the full commercialization, you're talking about, what, three or four generations? Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to change anything or, you know, come up with anything different if you've got that many generations after the other that have pushed the story. That's for sure. Well, on a different note here, born in Bethlehem of Judea, the soul Jesus who became the Christ, the master of masters. He was born under the hill, in the stable above where the shepherds gathered their flocks. And through the will and the life manifested, he became the savior of the world. The herald angels sang, and the star appeared that made the wonderment of the shepherds and caused the awe and consternation to all at the end. They were in awe as the brightness of his star appeared and shone, and as the music of the spheres brought their joyful choir, peace on earth, goodwill to men of good faith. Everyone felt the vibrations and saw a great light. And as the midnight hour came, there was the birth of the Master. The brightness of his star came nearer and nearer, the light as from his star filled the place. The entity first beheld the babe. The three wise men represent, in the metaphysical sense, the three phases of man's experience in materiality. Gold, the material, frankincense, the ether or ethereal, and myrrh, the healing force that was brought forth through the body, mind, and soul. Plus, if you, if you think about it, Sandy, frankincense represents the father, right? And myrrh actually represents the mother. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, you also had that, you know, point, too, where it was, it was acknowledging that, that the divine, both father and mother, had, you know, had reached the earth to bring about the changes that were needed. Absolutely. And the three, uh, the three wise men, they were the encouragement needed for the mother and those that had nourished and cherished this event in the experience of mankind. They came during the days of purification, but to be sure, only after she was purified were they presented to the child. The three wise men represented the three phases of mankind's experience, but also the three phases of the teacher from Egypt, from Persia, and from India. When the master came into the earth, he knew through this period there were various forces necessary to keep the balance in the universal forces, that the earth must bring forth a balance of mankind's energies and with the creative forces. 
and the energies needed to be all as one. So the Son of Man appeared. The person called Josie was close to Mary when the selection was indicated by the shadow or the angel on the stair. And at the period of consecration in the temple, this was not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple where those who were consecrated worshipped, or a school, as it might be termed, for those who might be channels. This was a part of that group of the Essenes who, headed by Judy, made those interpretations of those activities from the Egyptians' experience as the temple beautiful and the service in the temple sacrifice. It was in this consecrated place where this selection took place. Then, when there was fulfilling of these periods when Mary was espoused to Joseph and was to give birth to the Savior, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the Way, the Truth, and the Light, soon after this birth, there was the issuing of the orders, first by Judy, that there should be someone selected to be with the parents during their period of sojourn into Egypt. And this was owing to the conditions which arose from the visit of the wise men and their not returning to Harold to report. When the decrees were issued that, they, that there should be the destruction of the children of that age from six months to two years, especially in that region from Bethany to, to Nazareth, Josie was selected or chosen by those of the Brotherhood, sometimes called the White Brotherhood in the present, as the handmaiden or companion of Mary, Jesus, and Joseph in their flight into Egypt. The care and attention to the child and the mother was greatly in the hands of Josie through that journey. The period of sojourn in Egypt was in and about or close to what was Alexandria. So Josie and Mary were not idle during that period of sojourn, but those records that had been a part of of those activities preserved in the portions of the libraries there were a part of the work that had been designated for this particular entity. And the interest in the same was reported that the Brotherhood and Judean country. The sojourn there was a period of some four years, four years, six months, three days. And when there were those beginnings of the sojourn back to the Promised Land, there were naturally from some of the records that had been read by the entity Josie, as well as the parents, the desires to know whether there were those unusual powers indicated in this child now. That was, in every manner, a normal, developed body, ready for those activities of children of that particular period. The return was made, you know, and not only for political reasons, owing to the death of Harold, but the division had been made from the kingdom after the death of Harold, and that there might be the ministry or teachings that was to be a part of the brotherhood, supervised in that period by Judy, as among the leaders of the Essenes in that particular period. Much of the early education, the early activities, were those prompted or directed by that leader, but were administered by or in close associations with Josie. Those from the idea of the brotherhood, the activities of Josie, were no longer necessitated. So Josie preferred to remain, and did remain until those periods 
when there was the sending or the administrating of the teachings to the young master, first in Persia and later in India, and then in Egypt again, where there was the completions. But Josie, following the return, was active in all the educational activities, as well as in the care of the body and the attending to those pertaining to the household duties with every developing child. This was part of Edgar Casey's readings, and you know, and I thought it, it described it fairly well, and I wanted to share that with you. Now, one thing we must understand is that of all things that we do in life, that we are not to ever be in fear. Be not afraid or intimidated by the evil that has taken possession of our culture. Know that the power of God is far greater. To fear evil is to empower it and weaken the good. The one who fears evil will be more apt to surrender to it and be mastered by it. Therefore, the righteous must never be shaken by the power of evil, no matter how great the power appears to be or how weak the power of the good appears to be. They must remember that in the end, evil is powerless and good is almighty. As the almighty is good, the righteous must fear no evil. In a culture and age in which power is increasingly aligned with evil and evil with power, the righteous may be tempted to fear, but they must choose to not fear. As it is written, I will fear no evil. The answer to fear is not the absence of evil, but the presence of God. It was the presence of God that caused David to overcome an evil giant. The presence of God is the antidote to fear. And no, a candle in the daylight can hardly be seen, but the candle that shines at night lights up the dark. The righteous of this hour must shine as a candle in the night against the darkness to light up the night. We are not to be intimidated by the darkness of our age, but to embrace its challenge. To those who will stand, these will be the days that produce greatness. Amazing, isn't it? It really is. Um, you were going to do a, um, a channeling, a reading? Okay, yes. From the moment you choose to incarnate here in this world, you brought with you a light that would connect you back to the divine beings of light, a way to always remember who you truly are connected to. This light would help you feel the love of our Heavenly Father. Then, through Jesus, he came to teach us who we are and our connection to God, our purpose to do good on this earth and to love one another, that through our good deeds, we would know God. We would understand that even through our testings, if we held true to our faith, we would be saved. Even when we sinned, we would be forgiven. If we were willing to change and be a better person, 
we would be saved. God would be there for us. No one is perfect. And we will all sin. But to know that Jesus gave his life so that we could be forgiven and be able to eventually return to heaven if we believe in him. We came here this lifetime to learn and experience life to its fullest. We will all make some mistakes along the way, but to know God is helping us if we open ourselves to him and guiding us if we ask him to. This makes us feel a little safer. Never fear, for fear separates you from God. Have belief, even in the hardest of times. God is with you. Pray, meditate, give blessings, praise, and glory to the divine beings of light. They will hear you and respond. Empower your faith so you're willing to believe your prayers will be answered. For when you are so connected to the light and your belief so strong in the Holy Spirit, miracles will begin to happen. For God has given you the ability to do miracles. It is up to you to have the faith and belief and conviction to do this. Always align your energies with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and walk your path as one with them. Blessings to you. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, there's so much about the birth of, of Christ um, that has been just slightly altered <clears throat> at times throughout history. And, you know, it seems like if something can continue for approximately three to four generations, and I believe the Bible indicates that, three to four generations, then it becomes part of, you know, the lineage of, of, of the family. And it can show itself in issues that are created with typically the father of the third or fourth generation. And, you know, it doesn't take long. And, you know, the, the beings of the not-so-shiny light, as the angels call them, you know, are, are much more attentive to their, their purposes than, than most spiritual people are. And I'm not judging here, but I'm just saying that that the not-so-shiny light seems to put an awful lot of effort, an awful lot of attention on making sure that spiritual people have, you know, a constant, you know, issue before them or something to distract them or, you know, you're worried about paying tomorrow's rent, you know, and enough food for the end of the week, you know, so that you can't, you can't focus on what's really important. And, and God provides, but it's hard to remember that when it comes at the 11th hour. And it's always going to come at the 11th hour. Why? Basically because otherwise we would take the credit for it. If it came two weeks ahead of time and all of a sudden you had enough money to pay three months' rent in advance, you would take credit for it in some way or another even if it was a part of it, you would figure that you must have done something right. 
your, you know, you used your intellect or your abilities, and goodness gracious, I was able to, you know, to produce what I needed. Or I have the biggest house. I have the nicest car. Why? Because I'm smart. Really? So the idea here is, is that if you're gaining those things through your own intellect, then you are not on the side of the Spirit. You are on the, side of the other side. And it, even in the Bible, it goes, it goes through those same processes. We don't even realize it, but there are, are locations in the Bible, and people will tell me all the time, they'll say, well, I, I get kind of you know, leery when I, I read certain portions of the Bible because they seem kind of, you know, not so, not so shiny. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, there are child sacrificing and, and you know, and it seems just, just like no matter what, there's always something pulling someone toward something disastrous or, you know, someone is ordered to kill someone or, or wipe out a civilization. But you know what? God created this human body to be able to hold enough light so that we could ascend from this planet when the time came. And every possible group out there that, whose genetics had fallen, you know, were trying their best to make sure they could, could overrun, overtake, create genocide, whatever it may be, to try and keep the genetics low enough or our consciousness low enough that, you know, third dimension is limited. You know, this planet's lifespan is limited. A sun is limited. It implodes and then explodes and becomes, you know, a brand new solar system. And, you know, that was meant for the, for the ability for the upgrading of evolution, not necessarily for man's tendency. But, you know, as spirit beings, we began to like the things we saw in the material realms. And we said, well, we're just going to go there and take a look, you know. I'll just hang out a little while. But the problem is, is that we began to take on the attributes of the material realm. And we didn't realize it, but, you know, the, the soul created, or the spirit created the soul. And between the two, you know, you could, there could be a co-creation that was within divine plan because they were facing each other. But there came a point where the soul turned away and from spirit, and it, it, it looked the other way. And when it did, it had to have, you know, something between itself and, you know, and creation so that it could have what it desired. And so between the soul and the physical body that was created, you know, there was an ability to continue to create. But that which was created wasn't always in divine plan. It was sometimes in through desire or things we wanted. And basically that's the reason why we lost the ability of the tree of life and were stuck at first with the tree of knowledge because you had to walk it. And, you know, there aren't enough systems, there aren't enough days, there aren't enough times, you know, to be able to walk every possible scenario connected with even one bite of that, that apple, you know, we'll call it an apple, one bite of that apple there just wouldn't be in third dimension. We are limited to about 26,000 years. And so 
you know, once here and we began to eat of the apple, you know, of our own desires, the apple of our desire or the apple of our eye, you know, we found that we were stuck. And there were spiritual beings who hadn't even taken on the material, but they were here so long that they forgot who they were. And there was no way for them to be able in 26,000 years to remember that God even existed. Most of them began to sink into darkness. And there is a spiritual law, or divine law, we'll call it, that if you wish to change um, the purposes of a created system, in other words, you know, certain, certain groups were given a certain amount of light to be able to create a system where they could be the rulers of it, so to speak, um, and they promised they would, you know, only create within divine plan and that, you know, if, if spirits or spiritual beings came into the system and, you know, and took on a body form, that when they could hold enough light, that, you know, any light that had been taken from them when they came into the system would be returned and they would be able to ascend. Yeah, well, it's easy enough to say in 26,000 years, you know what, sure, we'll give it back, no problem at all. It's just like, you give me a million dollars now, 26,000 years from now, I'll make sure you get it back. You know, 26,000 years rolls around, it's like, hmm, it's not exactly right. And there were arguments over time. I mean, you know, even with using the zodiacs or the astrological as a means of time, there were ways to, you know, to look at it differently. And so there began to be wars and arguments, and it became a mess. And there is a, you know, behind-the-scenes hierarchy within this, this system. And, you know, some have likened it to this system being, you know, a, a watery cyst, so to speak, within the heavens. And, I mean, goodness gracious, if you look at, at the Milky Way, we are right, located right where the arm of, one of the arms of, of the Milky Way breaks. I mean, it literally breaks down. It, it's pointed downward, you know, because of so much worrying and so much, you know, so much of our own desires rather than following God's law that it has caused damage even to the arm of a, of a galaxy. I mean, we don't realize how much our intent, how much our focus, you know, can have upon, you know, the celestial rather than just, we think, well, if I do this, it's probably going to affect tomorrow or it's going to affect, you know, how much money I make, how much I eat, how big a house I have. Really? No, it can affect the stars, the, the moon, the sun, and this, even the astrological aspects of the universe. We don't, we don't take that into consideration. But even it has been said that, you know, how could mankind think that, that the warring and all of the dissension and the separation, from each, not just from each other, but from God, that it wouldn't show itself on the face of the sun in the form of, of solar eruptions, um, you know, that are 
passed out in plasma and can rock the planet. I mean, we know it can. We know it does. And yet, we continue, and they get bigger and bigger. I think last week, wasn't there, um, Sandy, a, um, a hole in the sun that was 200,000 kilometers? Yeah, it was huge. I mean, yeah. and it keeps, and the sun is really percolating, so to speak. Well, I bet, 200,000 kilometers? I mean, can we even imagine that 200,000 kilometers? And we may think, oh, well, that not, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. You know, it was said that, that we think that the stars and the moons and the, you know, the, whether or not Venus is in retrograde, all of that was, you know, is influences, you know, against us or influences for us, maybe. But in reality, we are the ones that were created to affect them. And it shows in our very sun. You know, that's why there became sun worshipers. And little did they take the time to think that what lights up the sun? It is the light behind the sun that is more important. And... You know, there will come a time when the sun will implode because for us to ascend, we have to be able to take the plasma that is ejected from the sun, its light, and it will pour forth and it will cause the heart to implode. And if you are at a place where you are at least trying to follow the law of God, then when the heart implodes, it will then explode back out without any destructive issues on the body. Now, if one can imagine that, um, I have seen computer simulations of that occurring. Um, A man who I consider a genius um, was able to create simulations of the Holy Grail and how, how it works within the body. And, again, what would happen if we were hit with large enough solar flares or solar eruptions that it would cause the heart to implode and then explode back out. And that's what's going to happen basically at some point to our solar system. I mean, the sun is going to explode outward in plasma and it's going to cause everything within the solar system to vibrate at, its, at the same frequency that it's at. And when that occurs... It's going to pull it in and pull it through itself, imploding. And when we come out the other side, we have been promised, you know, by God that we will be facing, you know, much greater light, much higher vibrational star systems, you know, and, 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 and astrological um, places within the universe than we are now because we are constantly bombarded by, you know, by not-so-shiny-like beings who wanted to be God and when they couldn't and, you know, they still want to be, but when they couldn't, well, they figured the best they could do was go after what was, was the most precious to God, and that's us. And... To change a system, any system, there, there are natural laws, or we call them natural laws, 
but they're God's laws. And those laws say that to change a system, once it has started, you know, if you allow it to go, it will use up the light that was given to it. And it will use it in ways that are not in divine pattern. And when they use the light not in divine pattern, then it creates a a destruction. It can be a little bit, I mean, a little, you know, off the path of God's plan by, by those in the power structure will we'll take a little, but a little here and a little there, and before long it begins to pull apart. And when it begins to pull apart, there is no way to put it back together again by the ones who, you know, were given the control or the, the ability to, you know, to oversee it. And unless there is a being of much higher light that is willing to come into that system as a part of the system or, or you know, incarnated into whatever the body form is and, and walk the path and walk the walk all the way through it. And however much they're able to do so, you know, they can change for the better. They can overlay what has been, you know, wronged or what has been moved or changed back to where it should be. And that is what Jesus did. Now, we use the word Jesus, and, you know, there's no way at this point to change that name because it's been around for too many generations, but listen to the two words, um, Yeshua or Jesus. Yeshua or Jesus? Which, which, which of the two have the feeling of a higher vibration? Jesus was the name given by the Romans. Because, you know, when some of the Romans, and, you know, not all of them were, you know, disbelievers. Maybe not overtly, but covertly. And so the highest God that they had was Zeus. And so they, you know, figured, well, this must be Zeus coming in and, you know, and, and bringing us more light so that we can, you know, fix things. Well, you know, we know that's not true. And so Zeus became the name, and that is Jesus. Jesus is a, veriv- a derivative of Zeus. And we have been calling that for so long, and you know, that's the way the not-so-shiny light tricks us. It gives us something that we just accept. Okay, well, that sounds about right, you know, and so we start using it, and we do it. And before long, and it can be something little, before long, though, generation after generation after generation passes, and until, can we then change it? Well, I mean... I have had preachers ask me, I don't know what to call, you know, the master of masters. I don't know what name to use because we know that, I mean, Jesus isn't it. It's a derivative of Zeus. And, you know, listen to the, even the vibration of Zeus or Yeshua. Zeus or Yeshua. Or Zeus or, you know, or the Logos. I mean, you can see the vibrational differences and every time we use that name, well, 
if our intent is pure and, and you know, and, and our love is pure, well, it, it, it can take away the sting of, of it being not correct because our intent is right. And God will, will count the try as righteousness. That's the beauty of it. But, you know, if we could get back to, you know, his, when he came into the earth and was born, it was Yeshua. And, and he was born into the lineage of Jacob, you know, and, and, and David, and, and it had to be that way. Um, it had to be a specific lineage because he had to be a rabbi. And so even the word um, that was given to Joseph as a carpenter, he wasn't a carpenter. You know, it was a, I, I believe if you look at the Greek, the original Greek, you will see that, that it's not carpenter, that he was a rabbi. Well, gee, a lot of difference there, isn't it? Let's see, we've got a man who's a rabbi or a man who's a, a carpenter. Well, you couldn't have taught in the temples. They wouldn't have let you near those scrolls if you were a carpenter. It's just the way it was. But he was not only a rabbi, but he had been taught by the best, the best of the best. You know, a relative, Joseph of Arimathea, had ships, and they took him to some of the, the places around the world that were the temples that taught of the highest and the purest. And, and it was even said that he went through the initiations of the Great Pyramid, um, which was very difficult and few could do it at that time, and he did that with John. Um, and they were very close. And so as he then went home, it was about the time that was necessary for him to take up his, his, his path as a teacher. But many, and, and anyone who came upon him called him rabbi, rabbi, you know, rather than even by a name, it was rabbi. And you don't just get the name rabbi out of the air. I mean, he had earned the title, and he was of the lineage. Mary was of the lineage, and so was Joseph, but Mary was of the lineage that would allow her, you know, to be of the priesthood or or if she had a son, to be of the priesthood. And if you look back before that, you'll see that the grandmother, um, Anna, some would call her Anne, but Anna, um, was, the, I believe, the correct name. And she declared that the daughter that she bore was immaculately conceived. And when, when the elders of the group, the Essenes, which we now know came from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that, you know, it gives us the, the answers. It fills in the portions that we may not have known. And Anna declared that she had not laid with a man and that her, her child that was coming was immaculately conceived. So the elders just assumed that, oh, my goodness, if it's going to be so special, it must be a male. So... They anticipated that Anna would would birth a male. Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, it was a female, and they were beside themselves. I mean, in confusion, 
and not knowing what to do. Why? I mean, you know, it, did it really take that to, to create a change? And have we really changed enough from then to now, you know, for there to be the equalness? And there still are, is fighting between, you know, the male and the female, and, you know, and to the point where let's just, Let's just put them in a dark suit and, and, and put seven of them on a curb and take a picture of them. How do you know who's who? I mean, and yet, somehow that makes sense to somebody. I don't know why. I mean, you know, to each his own. I'm not judging it, but I'm just saying, look how, I mean, how far we have to go and how far we've come. I hope it doesn't take another 2,000 years, but it takes to change anything that has begun to disintegrate. And once it has, or once it has begun to, to falter, it will continue to falter because light has to be added back into it because it's the light that keeps creation perfect, keeps creation moving in the way it should from the alpha to the omega. And the omega is just not really the end it's the end, but it's also the beginning. It's the beginning of the next phase, the next part of creation. You know, I believe it'll be eight days instead of seven. You know, another day? Hey, I hope it's another day off. But, you know, I mean, because I can use all those I can get. But it must have the input of the higher light um, after the existing creation has begun to destructure. It must continue to destructure unless there is a being of higher light. And when Jesus was born of Mary, well, Mary was immaculately conceived too. So it only makes sense that then she would have birthed the divine, the, the, the divine masculine. And you have the two. And they were twin souls. They were both of the same soul. And it would only, I mean, that only makes sense. And so she birthed the divine masculine, and you had, the, you had both here together, I mean, to bring forth, you know, the original creation, because the divine light that is perfect contains all of the original codes of creation, but you have to be able to tap into them, and who can do that yet? Well, there may be some on the planet, but, but Yeshua was the Logos, and the Logos was God, you know, we think of, of the Logos as the Son of God, and we can call it that, but you know what? It's God. God took a portion of himself, him herself, and, and took that portion, almost like a holographic image, and, and placed it into a new universe that was experimental. And it became the visible light, because without it, Darkness, and it even says so in the Bible. Darkness ruled over certain portions of even the earth, playing the system, the solar system, the universe. And so, well, why was it dark? I mean, was God's light not there? Yes, God's light has, has always been there. Light has always existed, but at times it is above the area we can see. It is you know, invisible or non-visible to us because it is higher. 
I guarantee you, if we were in fourth dimension right now, fully in fourth dimension, there would be twice the amount of stars in the sky. But there are stars up there we can't see the light of because they are of a higher dimensional aspect or frequency. No two blades of grass are the same. No two planets are the same. No two anything ever created are the same. And they each have their movement through time and space perfectly unless they fall. And when they fall, destructuring begins to occur. And it takes someone of like the level of, of Jesus or Yeshua or the Logos to be willing to come into a physical body and walk the path and walk every aspect of it. He walked every sin, every every everything that could be, he walked. You, we can't even begin to imagine. I've had people tell me, well, I've known people that did the things Jesus did, and I thought, you really haven't read, have you? I mean, even just the simplest of the book of Acts or, or you know, parts of the New Testament that that tell you, or, or even from the Old Testament through, that tell you what, what Jesus actually walked. Because if you really knew, you wouldn't have told me that. Because it's not about levitating. It's not about, you know, being able to, you know, I mean, to make the frogs gather around you. I mean, it's about being able to be of the sustainable light. That light that never dims. You could light, take a candle and light a, a million candles. You'll lose some wax, but the light doesn't go out. The light of God, the light of the Logos, the birth of the Christ into this earth brought that, that sustainable light, that light that never goes out, that never diminishes, that is constantly, you know, can, can be recreating and never loses one ounce of itself. And that is, is literally the beauty of Jesus being born into this earth, or Yeshua being born into this earth, um, so that he could change it. They didn't even recognize him. And it was their hands that crucified him. And when they did, it released the light. They didn't see it because it was above them. You'll never see heaven from where you are. I don't care what dimension you're at. There's always one above you. And they, they didn't recognize it. And, you know, that was the whole thing. It was their hand that crucified them, took all of the, the fluids out of the body, and it released the light. And that light was released into the earth, and it changed everything. It took away every curse, every sin, everything that could possibly have been done was taken away and was forgiven. And that is the beauty of the birth of Yeshua. And if we could only put on our presence from the time that Christmas occurs, that the presents come from God, our children would have grown up much differently than thinking they came from some guy named Santa. Absolutely. And it's an amalgam. Look at the letters of it. Well, we, we're about at the end of our program here. Yeah. And we do want to thank everybody for joining us, and we do hope you will join us again in two weeks. And we love you. God bless. God bless.